focus on God's word this morning as we read, again, from Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 36, going to 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Father, we ask for your help as we hear your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for a little bit of recap, we're one message away after today from finishing our series on Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. The last one's going to be Christmas Eve Eve, so if you want to hear how all this wraps up, um, we'll be looking at verses 39 and 40 on Christmas Eve Eve. Um, so I hope you can join us for that. But for the purpose of review, we have thus far looked at the testimony of the shepherds, the testimony of the wise men, the magi. Last week, the testimony of Simeon. And now this week, the testimony of Anna. And as we come to Anna's testimony, something that I think is highly highlighted in her testimony is this idea of waiting. And you see that in sort of her profile here in the first verse. This prophetess Anna, who was advanced in years, it's a polite way of saying this, was a mature believer, right? She was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, verse 38 says. But this was, in, in Luke's way of communicating to us, this was a category of people in Israel, people in Judea, people that were God's people and who were, in fact, waiting for God to do what he had promised to do when so many had given up on that. And boy, do people hate waiting. Waiting as a, as a, as a device of torture might be a very modern uh, view of, of, of waiting or, or patience. But I think that for all of history, people have hated waiting for things. Do you agree? It's not easy to wait. Nowadays, we order a package from Amazon and we get the confirmation, and it says it's going to be here on Thursday. And particularly if it's an item that you need very quickly, that time of waiting can seem unnaturally long, right? And, and it's funny, those, there, there are some things that we wait for for Amazon to deliver to us that we could jump in our cars and just drive down the street and pick up at Walmart. But who wants to go to Walmart, right? <laughs> Some, some people do. That's great. I'm, I'm glad you like Walmart. Praise the Lord. That's good. But for many of us, I think we like this idea of, hey, just bring it to me. I'll wait, but I won't, I won't wait very long. And particularly in the month of December, there's, there's a lot of warning, right, about ordering things and expecting them before a certain date, right? And so every time I've ordered something online, be it Amazon or otherwise, in the last, really, since November, there's always been this little red text or, or highlighted or boldened or, or something there, order by such and such a date to get it before Christmas. Because isn't it the worst thing to get a Christmas present after Christmas? I mean, there's, there's few things that we fear more in this season, in this month, than not being on time with something around the festivities. 
We don't like waiting. Certainly there are bigger things than Amazon packages that we wait for, of course, right? There's things that we are waiting on God to do in our lives, to bring redemption. The thing that Anna was waiting for, the thing that she spoke to many people who were also waiting for this redemption of Israel. What is redemption? If you remember all the way back 12 months ago, we spent some time in the book of Ruth, and redemption was the theme of that entire book, was it not? That Ruth, who was married to Naomi's son, found herself in a position where her husband had died, her, her brother-in-law had died, her, her father-in-law had died, and left her mother-in-law by herself, and she decided to stay with her mother-in-law, to go back to the people of God rather than to rejoin with Moab. She went through a season of waiting, and yet throughout that season, throughout her story, you can see how God is working together a redemption that ultimately culminates in her betrothal to Boaz, this happy ending that ends in a wedding and a baby, and it's, it seems that everything is made perfect at the end of that story. That's probably why it's such a beloved book in the Old Testament, besides the fact it's only four chapters, so it's really easy to read through. But redemption is this process of buying something back, right? If you have a gift card, when you spend that gift card, you are redeeming the value of that. You are taking what was rightfully yours. And so in the midst of this waiting for God to redeem his people, his people do not become his people upon redemption. They are, in fact, his people. Redemption is that action that they are waiting for God to come in and, and take what is truly his. To, to make things right, to show up, this is a silly example when we're thinking about God redeeming his people, but when we show up with that gift card, we are in fact saying, I want what I have a claim to. And that is what God is, has promised to his people, particularly at this time. There were many people who were waiting for redemption, but they didn't all agree on what that redemption should be. Likewise, as we sit around our tables this morning, many of us have specific instances where we would like to see redemption. We would like to see God come in and do something about this part of my life. Now, hopefully, the reason that we're truly here this morning is because he has come and enacted his redemption. Christ has come and died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice, the Lamb of God, the substitute for sinners, so that God could buy back his own people at the price of the blood of his own son. Hopefully that is the redemption that we gather here to celebrate and to remember and to walk in the realization of that a little bit more. But there are certainly other things that we would look to God and say, Lord, where is your redemption in my family? Where is your redemption in my finances, at my workplace, at whatever the thing might be? Waiting is hard. And Anna is an example of somebody who did it very well. And this is tricky because like any other passage where we see a character doing something well and it doesn't happen as often as you think it might in the Bible, but when we see somebody doing something well, it is very tempting for us to just simply say, all right, Nick, I get what the sermon is. Anna did these things. I need to do them. Can we go ahead and have lunch and decorate the cookies? It should be pretty straightforward, right? But it's not. And the gospel is not simply us coming to a place of saying, all I need to do is emulate what good people have done, and then God will be happy with me. That's impossible. 
And certainly Anna knew this. Certainly that the fact that her true hope rested on the redemption of Christ who was to come shows that her act of fasting and prayer and worship and then even proclamation and thanksgiving at the end is all proof of her hope in him, not proof of her saying, you know, God needs to hurry up a little bit. Hey, I got an idea. I'm going to go become really religious. And then God will see me and say, wow, I need to do something for Anna. Have you seen her? She's fantastic. It's not the gospel at all. Praise the Lord, right? That excludes many of us. Let's say the truth that it excludes all of us. If you'd like to follow along with the rest of this message, four points of this outline this morning. First of all, that we are, all of these are going to end in as you wait for redemption. Okay? So first of all, we're going to talk about worshiping Christ in your unique circumstances as you wait for redemption. Secondly, reckon with your rival priorities as you wait for redemption. Rely on the finished work of Christ as you wait for redemption. And then lastly, that we ought to give thanks and proclaim the gospel as we wait for redemption. This is what Anna did. Let's consider her profile as we consider this call for us to worship Christ in our unique circumstances while we wait for redemption. Because Anna had some pretty unique circumstances, didn't she? Did you notice how old she was? I've been wrestling with this this math all week. Math is not my strong suit at all. And looking at commentaries, it seems like Bible theologians and scholars aren't good at math either because we can't really quite figure out if she was in fact 84 at this time or if she was a widow for 84 years or what was going on. If she was a widow for 84 years, she could be well over 100. That seems less likely. It seems most likely to say that she was 84 years old and that prior to that, she had been married for seven years, which is not a long time, is it? Seven years she was married. Her husband passed away. She becomes a widow. And what's fascinating is that typically in this society, if you became a widow, that was it for you. you there was nothing else you could do but hope that somebody would marry you. And that was why in the Old Testament we have the Liverite marriage where you know, a brother would take his brother's wife if his brother had passed away so that somebody would take care of this woman. She didn't have any hope of taking care of herself. But yet rather than her pursuing marriage, maybe she did for a short time, but clearly God's plan for Anna was unique. He took the circumstances of her life and said, you don't have a husband And I'm going to make you a prophetess. That's what's going to happen. I'm not going to make you another wife. I'm not going to make you another husband, rather, um, that you can become a wife again. But rather, you're going to become a prophetess. I don't imagine that those two things are mutually exclusive. But the fact is, we don't have a lot of examples of prophetesses in both the Old and New Testament. That title shows up a couple times. You might remember Deborah in the book of Judges was called a prophetess. In fact, in the New Testament, we do have a passage in the book of Acts that says that there were daughters who prophesied but didn't necessarily wear that title of prophetess. The only other person who wears the title prophetess is in the book of Revelation, somebody called Jezebel. Not really a good example of a prophetess there, right? This was used in a derogatory term. So Anna is unique not only in the canon of the New Testament because she bears this title, but also because in the Gospel of Luke, truly in all of the Gospels, we are transitioning from the Old to the New Testament. And if you remember a few weeks ago, David mentioned there were 400 years of basically silence 
between the two Testaments. And so as we consider Anna being called a prophetess, that's significant here. Not just because she was able to tell the future or that she was even necessarily giving the word of God at that time, but she held a spiritual role that was significant in her community and a spiritual role that she could not hold in the same way, at least, if she had remarried. See, if she had remarried, then she would most likely have children. And if she had children, boy, moms, you know, being a mom is a full-time job. And to imagine working on top of that or taking on a title such as prophetess and and, and at this particular time, that's overwhelming. It seems very clearly that God had called Anna in her unique circumstance to worship him in a unique way. It'd be very easy for us as we look at Anna's profile to say, okay, so you're telling me that the most spiritual people are the ones who are at the temple night and day and praying and fasting all the time. And that the only way I can really live up to what Anna is showing me here is that if I move into the church and sleep in the basement. That's clearly not what we're talking about here. And I think it's important that Luke does tell us that Anna was a widow. It's a unique circumstance. It's a sad circumstance, isn't it? And yet God can take these unique and even sad circumstances and redeem them for his purposes. We also see that Anna was part of the tribe of Asher. We don't hear a lot of the tribe of Asher, not even in the Old Testament too much. It's considered, uh, theologians call the tribe of Asher, among others, one of the lost tribes of Israel. Tribes that had largely lost their, their sense of their ancestry and of their lineage. You remember in the Gospel of Matthew, and Luke has one as well, you have this whole genealogy, and, and you, know, you do your reading plan, you get to Matthew 1, and you're like, Boy, the reading plan is going to take no time today. So I can just kind of zip through this list of names and move on, right? I mean, genealogy is often, how about Chronicles, right? That's kind of a tough one to read sometimes. The son of 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 the son of. For chapters and chapters and chapters, why is that significant? Well, we see perhaps as a negative example, tribes like the tribe of Asher that had lost their genealogies, had also lost their way as far as looking for the hope of God's redemption. They stopped waiting. They stopped caring. A lot of these tribes that were dispersed during the exiles of the Old Testament, a lot of the people in those tribes just said, I don't really know if it's worth coming back to God's land. I mean, he did tell us, Jeremiah told us to settle in and and seek the good of our own city here. Why should we go back? And yet Anna is here to remind us that there is a remnant, even of the tribe of Asher, that it decided to stick around, that she remembered her lineage proves something very significant about her devotion to the Lord and her trust in him. To move forward into 1 Timothy chapter 5, as we're thinking about Anna as a widow, um, Paul writes to Timothy in his letter all about church structure and how to do church. In chapter 5, he's talking about widows. And of course, uh, in this time period, again, you remember, widows were those that needed to be taken care of. Widows were those that relied on others and the kindness of others if they were not married particularly um, to care for them. And so that was a big issue in the church. How How do we take care of our widows well? I mean, it was almost a church dividing issue in the book of Acts. 1 Timothy 5, verses 5 and 6, Paul says to Timothy, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God 
and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. It almost sounds like he lifted up the words from Luke's gospel and copy and pasted them to this letter. She has set her hope on God. She continues in supplication and prayers night and day. What Paul is saying is that not, not that becoming a widow or being single is suddenly this higher level of spirituality, but rather that it is a unique circumstance that God has called a person to worship within. And that a widow, Paul says, is one who sets her hope on God in contrast to hoping on other people to care for her. That widow is caring for God or, asking, or hoping for God to care for her trusting in his redemption and continues, therefore, in supplications and prayers night and day. Now, verse 6 takes a pretty dramatic turn. In chapter 5 of First Timothy, verse 6, he says, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even when she lives. Clearly, there was some problem with some number of people claiming to be widows who were, in fact, not living like widows at all. Not living at all like they were putting their hope in God, but rather were putting their hope in things in this world and were indulging. Now, again, this is a passage written to a young pastor about widows in his church, but clearly there's something for us here, right? That as we consider our unique circumstances and the things that we say, you know, my life is hindered because this thing happened in my past or because I have this thing that I'm dealing with right now. My health is going this way. My finances are this way. I can only do so much. Those unique circumstances, it's very easy for us to assume that because of them, we can't quite worship in the way that God might want us to. God makes it very clear in this life of Anna that regardless of our unique circumstances, we can, in fact, worship Christ through them that the unique circumstances bring about a unique platform for worship as well, to do something that others could not do. Clearly, if Anna had children, she couldn't be at the temple night and day, fasting and praying. But she was. She was there almost all the time. So that's the profile of Anna. The priorities of Anna are very clear because God's people don't wait passively. As we wait for redemption, it is not a matter of sit very still, just be quiet, look up every once in a while, Get in a Christian bomb shelter, ignore the world, plug your ears, close your eyes, and wait for Jesus to show up. It's not what God calls his people to do in waiting. We do not wait passively, we wait actively. And so the priorities of Anna were very clear. First of all, the presence of God and his people. Anna would have been one that if somebody asked about her, anybody around her would have said, Anna, she's always at church. She's always at the temple. Anytime I go there, she's already there. She was there early. She stayed late. She was there every chance she could. The presence of God was a priority of Anna and the presence of his people as well. Secondly, prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting, of course, are friends. They go along together, but one is more prominent. John Calvin, a theologian from the 1500s, said that fasting is a subordinate aid, pleasing to God no farther than as it aids the earnestness and fervency of prayer. It's very easy when we look at fasting, which fasting is just a a way of us giving up some good things so that we can look for a better thing in God. We can focus our, our minds and hearts on him. It's very easy for us to sometimes imagine that fasting is something we can tack onto our lives and say, you know what? My spiritual life is just kind of dead right now. I'm going to fast for a week. I'm going to, and you know, we can fast from food. We can fast from uh, whatever. So all sorts of things that we can fast from, except for sin. Of course, that doesn't make any sense. 
But we can take fasting and act as though it in itself is an end and not just a means. And unfortunately, sometimes fasting does get separated from prayer. Not in Anna's case. Fasting and prayer. Fasting for the purpose of prompting prayer. So her priorities were the presence of God and his people, prayer and fasting, and then lastly, we see after she sees Christ, proclamation and thanksgiving. Testimony, as we've talked about in previous messages, testifying to Christ is a natural response. And so it is with thanksgiving. And so our deepest need as we consider our own testimony is not to say, you know what, I just don't have the tools. I don't know how to start a conversation. The problem with our testimony is whether we've really fixed our eyes on Christ. And certainly there are times where those who have been born again wander and and let other rival priorities sneak in to where we don't proclaim the gospel. We're not ready to share and And it's not a mechanics issue. It's not a, I'm not a good communicator issue. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue because just as God calls us to worship Christ in our unique circumstances as we wait for redemption, he also calls us to reckon with rival priorities as we wait for redemption. And just think about rival priorities. Think about what might have come into Anna's life that would have distracted her from this mission that God had for her doesn't seem like it would have been a whole lot. Uh, most likely, she lived in an apartment outside the temple that was probably you know, provided for out of the treasury of the temple for widows, for those who were poor that needed a place to live. That was probably her circumstance. She doesn't seem to have had any kids, of course. If she was called a widow, then it, we can assume that, that she was completely alone. But she, like us, was a fallen person apart from Christ, a weak person like all of us. And at Christmas time, and particularly as we get closer to Christmas time, and particularly as I think about weak people, I always want to go back to Ebenezer Scrooge. And you'll remember, I'm sure, because it's in almost every movie adaptation, the description that Charles Dickens gives us in Stave 1, or Chapter 1, of A Christmas Carol. Listen to this. Of Ebenezer Scrooge, he says, He was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone. Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. Secret and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rime was on his head and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. The poster child for self-indulgence. For completely looking inward exclusively. Letting that priority of worship be completely overtaken by the rival priority of self-indulgence. That very thing that Paul warned Timothy about. Warned the widows, warned the whole church that he or she who is self-indulgent is dead even though they live. There's a spiritual deadness about Ebenezer Scrooge. And by the end of the story, of course, spoilers, but it's been around longer than any of us have, he has a dramatic change. It's an undeniable change. It's, it's It's a death to life kind of change. And that's what these rival priorities are threatening in our own lives. 
for us to walk in our old dead nature as opposed to the new life that we have in Christ. And so with any of us, it is possible that we may let even the sadness of our unique life circumstances that drag us down and that worry us and cause us to just sink in sadness, we might let these unique life circumstances give room for that spiritual deadness to come back in. You know, again, Anna spent time in fasting. And fasting is one very effective way to battle these rival priorities in our lives. Because again, fasting is denying yourself a good thing so that you can seek God for a better thing. It's not that self-denial is the way that we are called to save ourselves. We cannot separate fasting from prayer because it is prayer that is our expression of need, need for Christ. And if we're simply fasting, we can turn it into a self-accomplishment. To say, well, look what I've done now. I've fasted for however many days from whatever amount of food or juice or fruits or snacks or TV or whatever that thing might be. And we might come to the Lord with an attitude of saying, man, I, I really deserve something from you. And Anna's story could have been very different if she had let these rival priorities, whatever they might have been in her life, could have just been simply her own need to just say, Lord, I deserve something from you now. I think I deserve redemption. You know, I'm sure that not once or twice, but maybe maybe even every night, Anna had to tell herself that she didn't need a husband because she had the Lord. And so it is with us. The temptation of rival priorities in the world ultimately boil down to asking us, is God really worth waiting on? This is why we need to reckon with with these things. Not not just reckon as in think about, but we need to bring a finality in our lives. And we need to do that daily. You know, Paul said that he dies daily. that, That we need to walk in this newness of life, but also mindful of the fact that our old self needs to be crucified again and again and again because every day our old nature rises up again and tells us, hey, I've got a different priority for you than the word of God. I've got a different priority than getting to D group. I've got a different priority for going to church even or spending time in prayer. Again, looking at Anna, though she prayed, she needed rest. Though she fasted, she needed food. And these priorities would have would have been hounding her just as they hound us to say, is God really going to bring the redemption that we're waiting for? Is he really going to satisfy our needs? Will he redeem you? Whatever your rival priority is today, it's the same question and it carries that same weight. It carries the weight of eternity. Because God does not just simply say, hey, I'm an option over here. If you would like to rely on the God of the universe for everything you need, just let me know. It's actually weightier than that. Because God doesn't exist for us, does he? The wondrous mystery of Christ in the manger, the Christ child, the little baby, is that the God who has created everything and is above everything, is sovereign, is in control of all things, is greater than all things and worthy of all glory, has given his son. Has given truly what, rather who, is most precious to him for his enemies, for a bunch of Scrooges who walk around dead because of our sin. 
this question of whether God will redeem us carries the weight of eternity because to reject the gift that God has given us is the greatest insult. It is the greatest sin to have no faith in God at all, to say, I will trust in myself. And this is why Anna's example is so significant to us. She couldn't have done it on her own. All of her life was a life of grace. All of the expression of her worship was an expression of saying, I can't trust in myself. I have to trust in God's redemption for me. And so we need to reckon with our rival priorities today. We need to reckon with those things that would call us away from what God has for us, that would, that would say, no, there's something else that can satisfy you. Don't go to the manger. Don't see the Christ child as this wonderful gift because it's just a baby. You've seen those before. They're not a big deal. Come over here and find satisfaction in something else. Anna, of course, didn't do that. Anna relied on the finished work of Christ as she waited for redemption. Did she know what Christ was going to come and do? That he was going to come and live a perfect life and die as an atoning sacrifice and rise again and then send his spirit to live in all people? She probably didn't know all of those details. But she relied on the past faithfulness of God. She knew that God was the only solution to all the world's problems and the deepest problem in the world being sin. That's why she fasted. That's why she prayed. That's why she was at the temple day and night. She had unique circumstances. We can't all be at church 100% of the time. We can't all be in prayer 100% of the time. Though we are called to pray without ceasing. To have an attitude of prayer daily. How do we do that? We need to come to a place in our hearts where we rely on that finished work of Christ as we wait. That our waiting would not be passive, but it would be active. That we, like Anna, would come and behold the wondrous mystery and see Christ as everything that we're waiting for. We need to repent of these rival priorities and they can only be repented of and they can only be overcome by a greater rival. And Christ is that greater rival to all the priorities the world would throw at us and say, you need to have or you need to do or you need to be these things. Christ says, all you need is me. And this has been the testimony of all the characters we looked at. None of the sermons of testimonies have been about the testifier primarily. The shepherds, uh, they had an opportunity to come and see the gift that was for all kinds of people. The magi, the wise men, were called to sacrifice to the true king. Simeon was able to prophesy of the revelation of God's salvation. And so Anna shows us the proof that redemption was worth waiting for. Christ has come for those who have bowed to rival priorities and are dead in their self-indulgence. And he's called them to take those unique circumstances that have left them in despair and to redeem them, to make them new, to buy them back for his own purposes. And he's done that by his own blood. We see grace at the manger because we see the preciousness of salvation. We see grace at the cross because we see the cost of our salvation. It's sometimes hard for us to imagine the connection between Christmas and Easter because at Christmas we see a baby and then a few months later we talk about a full-grown man. It's the same person. And the preciousness of Christ on the cross didn't lose value just because he became a man who could, you know, he could take the judgment of God. He could take the wrath of God. Of course he could, but it wasn't his humanity that made him 
able to endure the wrath of God. It was that he was the son of God and that he could overcome the death that was our consequence for us. And so redemption is accomplished. It's accomplished at the cross. It is finished, Jesus said. His last words were before he bowed his head. And it's applied because the Holy Spirit has come and put that salvation into our hearts. And yet, we still wait for it. We still wait for ultimate redemption. Romans 8.23 is a classic passage to go to for this. Paul says, Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that is, everything that Christ has accomplished at the cross, we have that now. It's the first fruits. It's the best of it. There's, there's nothing lacking. And yet, still, we groan inwardly, Paul says, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Do you wait eagerly for that redemption today? Or are you waiting for something else? very hard. These rival priorities come in and say, don't wait for that redemption. Wait for me. Wait for this. Wait for that. And yet, if we could this morning confess our need and look to Christ, behold the wondrous mystery and refresh our desire for that, our eagerness for adoption, for the redemption of our bodies. Anna knew what she was getting for Christmas. She knew that redemption was going to come and she was already thankful. She was in a place where, having seen salvation, if you look at verse 38, it says, coming up that very hour, that has to be Luke referring to when Simeon held up the Christ child and said, now I can depart in peace because I've seen, hopefully not shaking the baby, I've seen your salvation. And Anna would have been there at the same time and said, that's it, there he is. And we don't get anything of Anna going and saying, oh, what a cute little baby. She immediately goes out and begins to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but I don't have the most thankful heart right now. Even though I I just shared the gospel with you. It's hard, it seems to be that thankful that we would be so prompted to say, I just gotta go tell people about it. Anna didn't suddenly become so thankful. She had been thankful through this whole process. She had been relying on God's past faithfulness. And so as we sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, this is the heart cry of Anna, who is sure that this is what God's going to do. Because God's people mourned in lonely exile until the Son of God would appear. And he has. And because he has, we can give thanks like Anna. We can give thanks and proclaim the gospel as we wait for redemption. This is the reversal of Scrooge. This is the end where he promises, I will keep the spirit of Christmas in my heart all year long. It's very easy for those who don't know Christ to take that and say, yeah, goodwill and and hope and and generic things, not putting our faith in Christ, but just, you know, good feelings for December. Let's have that all year long. But for those of us who know what this redemption truly is, we can live a life life of thanksgiving and proclamation of this gospel to those who wait for the redemption of Jerusalem. We probably don't know a whole lot of people who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I don't know if tomorrow you'll go into your office or go to work or or go home and be in your neighborhood or the grocery store and have somebody run up to you and go, I've been waiting for the redemption of Israel. Can you tell me anything about it? Wouldn't that be wonderful? We have to go to those people because like we were before we heard the good news, they're dead spiritually, even though they live. They have no 
no sense of their truly deep need in Christ being fulfilled. So Anna's life was marked by thanksgiving and proclamation after seeing Christ. And what's fascinating, again, jumping up to verse 36 and talking about the tribe of Asher. You know, Asher's land inheritance was the northern coastal plain of the area. And it bordered Phoenicia, which was where a lot of the Jews ended up after the exile. And they ended up, we say, Hellenized, which just means they were, they were just like the rest of the world. They had lost all sense of being Jewish and looked like the rest of the world. And so it's fascinating that Luke brings up that Anna was a part of the tribe of Asher because it foreshadows what's going to happen in the book of Acts, that the gospel is going to go everywhere, that Anna, Anna's message, more importantly, didn't just stay around the temple courtyards and around Jerusalem, but in fact, it reached all the way back to her tribe, the tribe of Asher. And so with us, we need to expect that our testimony and rather the message that our testimony points to will continue to spread throughout this world. There's still people groups that haven't heard the good news of Jesus. And this is why we are still here. That while we wait, we proclaim. And that waiting is hard. But when we have something to do, something active to do, and something that will constantly remind us of why we're waiting and upon what we're waiting find great encouragement in that. J.C. Ryle is a, a pastor in the 1800s. He says, the highest style, or that is the highest way of Christianity, even now, is to wait for redemption and to love the Lord's appearing. May that be on our hearts. Because we can rely on the finished work of Christ. We can truly put our hope in his appearing and waiting for that final redemption. Because our goal would be, in Christ, to have as little shock in that moment as possible, right? Because all of us, to some degree, when we see Christ face-to-face, whether he comes here first or we go to him first, when we see him face-to-face, there's going to be at least that moment where we go, oh my goodness, he's real. But we we weren't faking this this whole time. This was legitimate. And we want to minimize that sense as much as we can because we're able to be in fellowship with him now. So that when you look on Christ face to face for the first time, you will not only know who he is, because everybody's going to know who he is, but you will know him. He will be recognizable to you because he is familiar to you. And it will be the ultimate moment of saying it is so good to put a face to the name, to put a face to the voice, to put a face to the friend who has been by me throughout all of my years, through all of my unique circumstances, and reminding me that he is faithful and worthy of waiting for his redemption. May our lives be marked by the priorities of Anna, not because she figured out how to please God, but because she knew, as we now know, that waiting on the Lord is a worthwhile venture. Let us prioritize the presence of God and his people. Let us prioritize prayer and fasting. Let that mark our lives as we wait and rely on him. And let us prioritize proclamation and thanksgiving in any and all circumstances. Proclamation is hard. It's not something that we want to do naturally unless we are mindful of the presence of Christ. And he is ever with us. We're going to sing a song um, by Keith Green, one of my favorites. 
And it's a simple melody. We've sung it before, but if it's unfamiliar to you, you will pick it up soon. It was written to be sung. It's one of those good choruses that's repeated over and over again. But it's called, There is a Redeemer, Jesus Christ the Lord, precious Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Holy One given for us. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Father, thank you this morning for your faithfulness. Thank you that as we wait, we do not wait passively, but actively. These things that marked Anna's life mark all the lives of those who know you, who have seen you, who have been transformed, have been brought from death into life. I pray, Lord, that you would awaken these things in our lives as well, that we would prioritize worship, that we would prioritize seeing Christ, and that when our hearts wander and listen to these rival priorities in our lives, that we would be mindful of the preciousness of the gift of our salvation, the good thing that we don't deserve, and in fact, giving the best thing possible as your son. Would you help us now as we sing this last song, as we fellowship together to fix our eyes truly on you, that you would change us more into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.